This is the Masters of Cinema cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Thiessen. And on today's episode, we are going to be talking about Fritz Lang's 1931 film M. But before we get there, we're going to have a quick run through with what has been going on in the world of Masters of Cinema. Joachim, what have we got? Yeah, we've been away now for four weeks or something, and there's been quite a lot of development in the Masters of Cinema world. Um, Spine number 47, Antonioni's La Notte, has been postponed until the 25th of August due to what they said were unforeseen circumstances. So I don't know what that's about. Yeah, bit of a shame as well, that one, because I was really looking forward to it. But um, yeah, I'm sure they have their reasons. Um, We also had a 24-hour deal. What was that one about? Uh, Masters of Cinema, they had a deal where you would receive a free DVD copy of John Ford's The Prisoner of Shark Island if you bought two or more items from their office page. And they also had a concurrent uh, sale um, that were a few uh, Blu-rays, which were reduced in their price until the end of April. So you can buy uh, something like Rogopag, which I bought, or Curfidel, which I also bought uh, for nine ninety nine. Yeah, and definitely, if you can, pick up those um, the Steelbook editions. And um, we'll, we'll make people aware, won't we, on the kind of the blog and Twitter and things like that? Because um, I think that yeah, those Steelbook editions, I certainly think they're the kind of the preferred version for me. I, I think they're um, packaging wise, I think they're pretty spot on, and um, I have noticed a few of them go up in price quite considerably afterwards, especially I think it was a Metropolis one I've seen going for quite a pretty price. So definitely kind of pick those ones up if you can. Now, unfortunately, that sale is ending on this night's recording. So, right. But I tried to make people aware of it due to Twitter or Tumblr or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to be honest, I go on Amazon every day. So if I see any cheap um, master cinemas, I will kind of flash them up and kind of make people aware of them because obviously it's where if you can save a few pennies here and there, it's well worth um, looking into. Hmm. Okay, so as well, I suppose we, um, we had some tweets from them regarding um, new and upcoming releases. So why don't you kind of run through those? Yeah, uh, on uh, the last uh, last Monday, I think it was or something, uh, they announced their new June and July lineup, which included five releases. Uh, the most interesting one for me was uh, the Birth of a Nation release from D.W. Griffith, uh, Blu-ray release number fifty-two. Yeah, and and that's a film which I, obviously we will get to it when we get to it. I'm looking forward to it in many respects. But I actually watched it um, last year, and I I I struggled with this film in in, in many ways. Um, I think it's a, f- a fairly obscene film in many respects. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously we'll get to it on that episode. But I mean, um, you have seen it before, haven't you? Essie? Yeah, I saw it. It was one of the first films we saw in film studies class, and I remember not liking it, but. He didn't give us any context around it. And that's one of the things about this release. Is there no, there's no documentary or something that contextualizes this release. But hopefully the booklet will provide us with some insight. But it, it's really a film that you can't really... You can't really adore it on its own merits. You have to see it in terms of cinema's development. Yeah, certainly. It's, it's a film which is, um, I think, certainly in, kind of in context of like the language of cinema. Mm. It's a film which obviously has a vital part to play. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you call Joe Barlow's excellent podcast um, "Cinema Slave" when he talked about this film. Joe was quite you know, a bit of a, a W. Griffith apologist, I suppose. He was saying that um, you know the man himself was kind of distraught when this film came out, and uh, I've never really believed that. As and I know a lot of people say he made intolerance as kind of a um, you know an apology, as it were, for this film. And um, as far as I was aware, tolerance was being uh, prepped and planned whilst he was doing this. So I, I don't really kind of buy into that argument. But obviously we'll get there when we get there. I'm you're looking forward to it as well because apparently it's got this kind of 5-1 surround sound uh, mix of the um, Mont Auto Motion Picture Orchestra. So I'll be looking forward to hearing that. But yeah, some short films on it and things like that. I'm sure it'll be a great package. Obviously we're going to pick it up and uh, discuss it at the time. We've also got some upgrades as well. Why don't you tell us about them? We have two upgrades from uh, Kaneto Shindo. Um, the Naked Islands by number 54 and Kuroneko by number 56, which we talked about on a podcast or two ago. Quite different films from what I can understand. Uh, I've seen Kuroneko from the Criterion release and it will be interesting to compare the pictures. I don't know if they are using the same... Uh, uh, the same master. Yeah, um, definitely looking forward to those ones. But there is another one as well, which I am particularly kind of excited about, which is number 61, which was um, Murnau's Taboo. Mm-hmm. This is his collaboration with uh, Robert Flaherty of the uh, Nanook of the North fame. It is a look at 
uh, islanders on Tahiti and their myths, sort of a, a love story with uh, a couple trying to flee from their tribe. Yeah, and I, and I've recently watched a, a Portuguese film with the same name, which was kind of like loosely inspired by this. And um, yeah, I'm definitely really looking forward to this one. It's a great film, Taboo, and I, I you know I love Murnau as well, and he's one of those kind of ever-present members of the Master Cinema Collection who, uh, yeah, I do enjoy his work, and it'd be nice to see that kind of. I suppose kind of the, the best presentation um, of it as well, because I understand you know, it's going to be kind of in its original aspect ratio for the first time and things like that. So I'm certainly looking forward to that one. And what else have we got coming up? Uh, the final release is by number 62, which is uh, Le Pont du Nord by Jacques Rivette. I never heard of this film. From what I can uh, find on the internet, it's very... It's very moody and very surreal film that... Uh, it's an unreal walk through the streets of Paris, it was described as, where two women randomly meet strangers and they're trying to find this, they're trying to solve this uh, strange and surreal mystery. Yeah, and I mean, I, I until you know, this film was mentioned by my cinemas, I'd never seen it, I'd never heard of it at all. You know, I, have, I know absolutely nothing about it. And um, yeah, you know, I, it, it's always kind of intriguing, isn't it? Because, you know, like I said, we're blind buying a lot of these films, you know, to see what's going to come through. And uh, this is certainly one where. Um, yeah, I'm going to go into it knowing nothing about it. And certainly, I think I'm quite intrigued by the uh, the kind of the synopsis and the kind of description of it. It sounds something which is obviously kind of quite interesting. I think we were going to discuss something which I think was you raised it um, a couple of weeks ago with me, and it was to do with Masters of Cinema covers. Yeah, and um, why don't you kind of just kind of just expand a little bit on that because. Especially when you see these five releases and compare the covers to one another, there's one that particularly stands out to me, and that's the Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. which is this. Uh, it has this great um, hand-drawn poster, which is really eye-catching and works really well for the Blu-ray. But the other ones are usually these still-frame images or very dull images, which look kind of photoshopped or this old VHS-type style. I follow a lot of people that make these uh, fake Criterion covers and fake Masters of Cinema covers, and I've used uh, quite a few of them on my uh, the Film Man podcast for my individual episodes, and I know that many of them would love to get a crack at uh, one of these covers. And even if they don't use these um, these custom posters, you could at least choose a decent poster, because what, some of these are not very good at all. Yeah, certainly. I mean, when you look at them, I mean... There's there's ones. That, I mean, let's be honest. There there are you know there are a few a few, few cases. Certainly the Birth of Nation one again, like you were saying, and the kind of the Testament of Dr. Mabelson and that kind of thing, which you know they're really kind of great artwork and they kind of kind of you know they do stand out. And you know the kind of the analogy I can give it is that I work with um, dance music labels, and a few of those you know some and because it, it's kind of all digital now and people aren't kind of sifting through vinyl and stuff like that. A lot of the kind of the, the record labels they don't really put any kind of effort into the the kind of the, the artwork for their covers it's just you know and the name of the artist and the name of the song and some of them really do and i always sort of look at the ones that really do with kind of kind of sort of admiration because i always think it's kind of this kind of dying art form the kind of the, the cover and when i was looking at some of these kind of the going back over these master cinema I mean, some of them they are they're pretty dull like you said they're just sort of a still from the film with some kind of you know rather generic kind of text font or something like that and the ones that really kind of stand out you know, like, like, like I said, the birth of nation and things like that. You know, it's nice to see when I think that kind of extra effort goes into them. And it's not to say, I mean, the most important thing is obviously the content, isn't it? We're not sort of, you don't, I, 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 same to it, I don't think, you know, kids are going to be buying these um, Blu-rays and sort of, yeah, oh, mum, not, you know, look, I'm, you know, what's this taboo? I'm not, I'm not going to get it on the basis of how boring this cover is. But, you know, we say these things, I think, because we care. And um, yeah, I, I think you said some of them look a bit sort of VHS-y, which is... Uh, it's not a good thing. No, it's not. And, you know, like I said, we, we're only saying because we care, really. But, I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's... I mean, they have had some great ones, like Passion of Joan of Arc yeah. is oh, a yeah, brilliant yeah. cover, I think, in Gate of Hell and Onibaba. So it, there's not a lack of uh, good uh, good covers, but there are some that screams for a different uh, approach. Yeah, and um, it, it costs money, doesn't it? I mean, that's the thing, you know. It's... Uh, I suppose with kind of resources aren't sort of you've know, got you know, your own art department and things like that you know you are gonna you know it's one of those added expenses perhaps that you can kind of if you can perhaps license some artwork from somewhere else you know stick it on there you know it's probably better but yeah you know I, I it's just something I think that uh you know it was a good kind of spot by you and it's not something really like I said I, I'm more it's the content really and it's not something I really kind of consciously had thought about in a great deal but as soon as you kind of look sort of mentioned to me I was like mm, you know some of these are a bit um 
I say dull would be the word, the, the, the yeah. kind word to say. But nonetheless, I think obviously it is the package that you're buying it for. And especially you know, if you look at those kind of booklets that come with them as well, I mean, they're normally pretty, you know, they're like, you know, decent. Film. If you if you saw that in a shop, you know, you'd be pretty impressed. But, but I think we can kind of like move on from there and we get right on with this week's film, which is Fritz Lang's 1931 M. Du hast dabei einen schönen Ball. Wie heißt du denn? Elsie Beckmann. Dankeschön. Okay, so our topic of conversation this week is going to be the 1931 film M. And I'm sure you're probably all familiar with the film, but I'll give a quick synopsis anyway. A little girl called Elsie Beckman is murdered by Hans Beckett and the police go on an intense search for any man who will fit the profile of a psychiatric patient with a penchant for violence towards children. As the police presence on the streets intensifies the disputing criminal underworld are forced into action and try to help find the killer. Beckett is recognised and soon caught not by the police but by the criminals who get hold of him and decide to hold a mock court in an abandoned distillery. But just as his justice is about to be served, the police arrive and Beckett is sentenced by an official court. Now, this is not, by any means, the first film in the Master Cinema Collection by Fritz Lang. He is actually quite well represented, isn't he? Yeah, I think there's nine films in the in the Master Cinema series now, uh, and three of those are on Blu-ray. So it's not only uh, early spine numbers like uh, Spione, which has come back in uh, print actually for DVD now, but also recent releases, which uh, the Knee Belonging, for example. Yeah, and it, it sort of dawned on me really when when we were kind of doing this thing that you. you for for a director who I mean I think for a lot of people Fritz Lang is Metropolis, I think that's how they they you know, they associate him and you know why not you know it's a fantastic film but I mean you don't hear Fritz Lang being talked about on many podcasts do you really? No, it's a shame really. There were some talks about him when the uh, prints for Metropolis were being discovered, yeah, but only in terms of historical importance and that sort of thing. There was there are no podcasts which are really talking about his films. Yeah, and I mean this is it's a sad thing really because I remember when M was coming back, everyone's kind of getting their knickers in and not. And I remember sort of listening to sort of you know, some of the really big podcasts as it were. I won't, I won't name them. I don't really like to sort. Of, I, I always feel. Slightly uncomfortable, kind of perhaps um, saying derogatory things about other podcasts, bearing in mind I know sort of how hard it is. But you know, everyone's like saying, Oh, um, you know, Fritz Lang, what an amazing person, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, you know, let's talk about some kind of generic crap that's coming out that week in the cinema. And it, you know, I can pretty much guarantee over the next couple of weeks, every, probably every podcast going will be kind of droning on about Iron Man 3. And it's just a shame because I think, you know, filmmakers like this should be celebrated a lot more than they actually are. And in a lack of it, it just seems to be that there's a I don't know if that's a lack of interest in uh, perhaps the audience, perhaps, but it's just mainly it seems to be that uh, podcasters themselves don't really have very much interest in them. And it's why I think it's a good thing that you know we have like Masters of Cinema to kind of keep these guys sort of you know out there in the conscious. But I mean, I suppose the first thing was what was your first sort of uh, first time you ever saw him and what were your kind of first thoughts about it? The first time I saw it was uh, through the Criterion Collection where I blind bought the uh, Blu-ray which came out. I've heard about it uh, through uh, film theory books and whatnot, but um, i never seen it. And uh, I remember being struck by the sound, not really knowing that it was his first sound film, but just in terms of how he utilises it and how modern an entire film from 1931 seems completely modern in terms of its uh, technical abilities. And that, that was what I took out of it first and foremost. Yeah, and I mean, my, my first experience of it was um, in 1998 and I'd, I'd just gone to university. And um, I'd, I'd kind of gone to university on a diet of Michael Mann and David Lean films. And I was used to kind of like wide cinema and this was one of the first films that we saw in our course. And we saw a rather wonderful cinema called The Showroom in Sheffield, which is where we had our lectures. And for an art house cinema, the screens were pretty, in, they were pretty big and quite impressive. You know, a lot of them, you know, certainly the art house cinema in Manchester, there's one screen which is reasonable size and the, kind of the rest are kind of all fairly small. And the showroom had really big screens. And I remember we saw a 35 minute print of it. And I was just blown away by this kind of vertical composition because everything before, you know, this Michael Mann, David Lean kind of binge I was on, everything was wide. And this was all kind of, you know, it was all focused in the middle. 
And um, I, I was amazed by it because it did remind me a lot of kind of a Michael Mann film in a way because, you know, it's a very kind of, especially Manhunter, you know, obviously it's kind of, you can't not make the comparison in many respects and how this is kind of like a police procedural. You know, we're seeing the kind of technology of crime fighting being utilised to kind of catch this guy. And yeah, I was blown away by it. I, I think it's um, it, it's a wonderful film. You know, I'm going to talk about it a lot more. But I'm, I've always loathed when people say, "Yeah, what are the best films ever made? And what's the you know what's the best this and what's the best that?" And um, I, I would say, you know, were you to ask me to kind of write a list down of the films you know, I thought the, the the best ever, I suppose. You know, um, I think would be on there. I think it's uh, I think it's that important, and I think it's that good as well. And you know, I kind of kind of kind of what kind of wait to kind of dig into it really. But um, you know, it, it was. I think it's important anyway because this was Lang's first sound film, wasn't it? Yeah, I think uh, the last film he made was Frau in Mont in uh, 1929 before he made M, and it's definitely a shift going from a, a silent film where you have to you, you have to use the visuals in such a different way than when you have sound especially when you compare to other films which only utilize sound in a such a oh look at this we have sound type of way this is much more a integral part of the story as we were talking about yeah i mean it's it's a film where you know obviously they've sat down and They've, like I said, they've not thought, oh, you know, let's kind of dazzle the audience, or, you know, audibly dazzle the audience. They've said, you know, how can we new sound to, to help us tell this story? And, um, you know, it's obviously something we're going to talk about a lot later, but I think it's, it's a fairly, it's a film, which it's a very modern film for the time in terms of its kind of utilization of technology. And also, it's kind of the first major role for Peter Lorre as, as M. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, this would be a film which, you know, he'd be a villain for years because of this. And, uh, you know, I'm about to talk about the man who knew too much on the 24 Frames cast. And, um, yeah, I, I, I should imagine this kept him in work for, for quite a long time. But I think I'm, it is a career defining role. It yeah. is, yeah. And, I mean, it, it must be frustrating as an actor, I think, when perhaps you have that. Because, obviously, you kind of you have dreams about, you know, being all these kind of different people. And, you know, you suddenly become typecast so early on in your career. But, you know, such is life. But it, it's a film that's actually, it has as well, I, I think it's important to talk about its kind of context because this was actually based on, you know, sort of real life, wasn't it? Yeah, there were many real life cases in Germany uh, in the 1910s and 20s where there were a few serial killers and child molesters rummaging around in Germany. And I think uh, Peter Kürten is the one that is most famous out of them. But uh, he actually based it on four cases from what I have gathered through my research and uh, it's sort of a public service announcement uh, that he gives us at the end where he says uh, keep closer watch over the children all of you yeah yeah that's good, it's good of him as well <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it, I, th- I think when you know that you know we kind of like I think it's certainly kind of knowing that I think infuses the film you know in, in terms of how we kind of look at it now um, because uh, I mean I, it, one of the films i was thinking about was kind of gone baby gone and how that was um kind of put back in england um during the kind of the madeline mccann incident in portugal when she was adopted and the kind of the hysteria that was going around there you know it's like for god's sake if you go on holiday you know keep your kids tethered to you and it, it's a film you know, it's made in that kind of environment and that kind of well you know it's obviously an extremely scary one for people it, as opposed to uh gone baby gone i think M is much more uh, a distant approach to this sort of um, this sort of crime, where it's much more reliant on the audience reflection on current events rather than their involvement in the characters and the atmosphere and the action. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, it, I, yeah, they're completely different films. However, I think you know, I think the, the the comparison in terms of you know the kind of in, the the atmosphere of which they were released is is you know very very similar because you know this is a. It's an incredibly dark film, and it's strange because I worked with someone the other day. And she was saying that oh, she was like, "What's that film that they don't show anymore about that guy?" And I was like, um, "And she was like, yes, you know." And you know, it's 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 a look, isn't it? It's a look at, at not so much the the murders themselves, but it's a look at the person that's doing the murders, and very much about the mentality. Yeah, yeah, and, and what is the sort of the you know, you know, how do we relate to these people and you know, what, what goes through their mind? Because it's a film that dares, I think, to put us in the position where it, it allows us to have a degree of sympathy for the person, which is something that we don't often have in these types of works. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've gained any sympathy necessary other than feeling that he should be treated as 
uh, a deceased yeah, person. As a, he's ill, basically. That's yeah. what we're trying to say. I think you know, he's, he's you know, it's not all oh, poor me. You know, he's he's an ill person. You know, but there's definitely an attempt to make us understand him, other than just dismissing his actions. Yeah, that's it. I mean, this is—he's not a kind of—he is a monster, but he's not presented in that typical kind of way. You know, you think about a film like, um, I, I think something like *Silence of the Lambs* or something like that, where you know we're we're sort of we're there to have fun with Hannibal Lecter, aren't we? You know, he's that kind of character, and it, it's all a bit kind of jokey, jokey. This isn't. This is someone who's kind of deranged. You know, he's a pathological killer you know he, he literally he hasn't he can't really quite control what he's actually doing no you can see it uh in one of the scenes where he's he's looking at a mirror uh on the street and he spots a reflection of a girl walking by and it, you can see his entire body language change and you can see he's he, he's discomforted by what he's feeling but he can't really hold it into place it seems like his his urge to grab her is uh, taking more control over his uh, moral uh, thoughts. Yeah, and as far Very as... Very psychoanalytical. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of the few f- early films, really, where I, I can think it actually takes that approach. I, I can't recall any anything kind of like of that time that kind of goes down a similar path mm. like this. And I think, you know, it, it dares to ask questions which perhaps even today are very, very uncomfortable to ask. You know, we live in a society where, you know, we create these, when we, you know, like you know, there's massacres in America or something like that, you know, and we look at these kind of people and we sort of say, well, what, what's produced them? And we, you know, there's always this kind of degree of soul searching. And it, it, I think it's a film that kind of get, tries to get under the skin of what it is about those types of people and why they do those types of things. It's even a, a, a recent film called uh, The Woodsman with Kevin oh, Bacon. Yeah, what a film. Yeah, definitely yeah. good shout. I mean, well, I mean, you know, I watched that in a cinema and, I, and people at the end were like, you know, hang the fucker from a tree mm. type of thing. And I, I was sort of like thinking, well, I, you know, again, it's you know, it's a pretty bad, you know, it's a pretty awful person. But it, it does, it doesn't go down the warm path saying, look at these people as monsters. It does sort of, you know, look at the, look at them in, and, you know, I used to have sympathetic, but, you know, it looks, it makes you look at them in, in a different light. Yeah. They're flawed people, but they're still people. So, yeah. Exactly, you know, and who are just different and, you know, it's, you know, what to do with them. You know, I think that's the sort of the, you know, and we'll get to that in a, you know, in a bit, mm. you know, how, how do you kind of react to these kind of people? But because it's a film, I think, you know, where one of the things we were talking about was the fact that he is, you know, Peter Laurie, this, this Beckett character, he is the central character really, isn't he? And he's the one you get to know the, the best in the film, really. You know, everyone else is kind of like, not kind of they're very much there for the plot aren't they they're not really there to sort of uh they're not i suppose fully fledged characters in the traditional sense yeah i, I couldn't name uh, another character other than beckett in this film or elsie uh, but yeah but i mean that's only because you know at the start when we're kind of sit, you know seeing and hearing you know, the yeah. kids we don't really sort of spend much time with the kids do we you know i mean we don't not anyone else basically he's he's treating them as groups basically where he's, where he's it's either the police or the mob it's not individuals yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, I guess it's kind of time to sort of talk about the, the kind of the, the mob in this one, because it, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because I mean, I, there's a there's an awful documentary about Manchester, about gangsters in Manchester, and this kind of um, quite notorious gangster in Manchester came on screen. And he said, it's a city that's run by the police um, by day and people like me at night. And you, you see this, don't you, in the film that you, you have the, the, the criminals who... I think it's kind of quite a dangerous, kind of, I suppose, quite um, dark place, really, because you have the fact that society is kind of held together by criminals as well. Mm-hmm. It seems that they are an integral part of what makes a society, unfortunately. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's quite a strange one because you're watching it sort of thinking, well, you know, these guys are helping the police, but they're not doing it because they want the killer well, they want the killer caught so they can carry on being criminals mm. they're not doing it because they think oh yes poor girl and these you know we need to get this guy off the streets it's very much it's, it's, it's selfish isn't it in a way what they're doing very much so but it produces the same results and they're even more effective than the police in capturing Beckett which is an interesting comment from Lang yeah and I mean you know one of the things I do love about the film is you see the police employing this kind of all these kind of technology and kind of the psycho profiling. There's that one, my favourite shot in the whole film is that one where they're looking at the kind of the thumbprint or something like that of, of them. And you, know, you can see them trying to you know, use technology to try and 
track this guy down. But really, it's the kind of the brute force of the criminals that is able to kind of get them there, you know, and that's, you know, I don't know if you think Lang is sort of saying that the two are one of the same, you know, one's just more official than the other. Yeah, I, I, I think he's trying to draw comparisons. He, he does it through the editing where we can see that they are talking about capturing this killer and they're speaking about him in a very similar fashion. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, I mean, I, I, again, I, I don't recall seeing a film where that kind of the collusion between the two worlds is mm. so apparent and so necessary in many respects and so effective. You know, because, you know, let's not forget, you know, Hollywood films at the time, you know, which would kind of deal with kind of the prohibition era, kind of gangsters and things like that. You know, crime didn't pay. It was, you know, pretty bad. And here it's sort of, I, th- I think it's going down a route which I-, I don't think any other kind of cinema at the time really would have done. That You can't imagine this film being made in America, can you? No, not really. I mean, although it was actually, actually, it was actually remade in the fifties, but I mean, whatever it is, I'm sure it's a lot different. But I'm not actually seen the remake. But and yeah, I think the other thing as well, this film has it, it kind of keeps quite true to its kind of roots. Really, I mean, the I don't know if you noticed, but I um, mean, yeah, there's yeah, you know, there's some la- there's some quite harsh language in the film as well. You know, I don't think it kind of, I think it's quite a realistic depiction of you know, kind of the lower end of society, as it were. Hmm. But but I think obviously the thing that perhaps we spend the most time talking about in in M is the sound design of it because when, when you know it's like any kind of technology at the moment it's cinema is really kind of the, the history of cinema is littered really with technological advancements and you know be it kind of color sound widescreen you know we go for this 3d boom again now and when, when i was watching it i became acutely aware that lang is using sound to be an absolutely vital, integral part of the film. It's not being used to kind of, you know, we don't have kind of someone that switching on a stereo just so the audience can listen to music. It doesn't have that kind of, you know, ooh, look at me approach to it. And I, I was equating it to kind of 3D, really. And I'm yet to see a filmmaker or any film shot in 3D that, the 3D is so integral to the film that you can't have it without it. And as much as I enjoy 3D at the cinema, you know, I've watched you know, Avatar, Prometheus and things like that and Judge Dredd now on 2D and I've enjoyed them just as much. And you know, the 3D isn't integral to the story, but sound is in them, isn't it? No, um, and you can see that the films that we are talking more and more about in this day and age are the films that not only use sound to describe but he uses it to enhance the picture whereas many of the filmmakers i think that made that transition from uh, silent era to sound era they didn't know exactly how to incorporate sound into the film but used it as just a another um, expository point yeah and i mean you know the the the, the you know beckett actually gets caught in the end by some by sound mm-hmm. the know, whistle the, yeah yeah, and the blind guy, you know, who who recognises the, the two and marries it up. And this is interesting because it was the first real use of having um, a, a motif of sound to associate with a character. And that's something which comes from opera. And, you know, it, it's a convention of that and it's being used in cinema. And, you know, you think about it now, that is used all... It's virtually used all the time. It's, if you buy a soundtrack now, it will have invariably, a, you know, the name of a character and then theme next to it. You know, it's so integral, isn't it? Yeah, uh, the light motif, uh, which in this case is uh, Grieg's something from the hall. I can't remember the title of the tune, but uh, that's what he whistles when he is um, set on killing these uh, girls. We used to have a lot of these character themes running through so you can recognise, especially in westerns and such, where you have a bad guy sound and a good guy sound, for example. I mean, the opening of this film... One of the things that really got me was you have these children singing these nursery rhymes, don't you? And it becomes incredibly... When you know, obviously, what the film's about and you hear these kids singing, it, it takes on an incredibly sinister approach. And I think, you know, he's obviously, he obviously knows that. He, you know, he knows the impact on, on sound and what it will have on us, the audience. And I, you know, the word visionary, you know, I think it is a kind of a visionary kind of approach to the sound design. Mm-hmm. And you can see that this, especially when he's juxtaposing this innocent children's game with these distressing words, and he's there's an intention with how he's using sound, and yeah. especially he's not using them 
for only the characters, but for us, the audience, and how we are supposed to feel about it. Yeah, and I mean, I, and we you know, talk about the sound and sound. This, this entire film was shot on sound stages, and I, I think there's a lot of the moments in the film where he actually uses silence as well, incredibly effectively. I I agree that he uses silence um, effectively at times, but there were especially one scene where I felt that it felt just strange that were that there was complete silence. You mean no kind of like foley like people walking or yeah, anything like that? Yeah, you didn't like have that. anything atmospheric or anything like uh, diegetic sound. So uh, especially, I think it was when the police were out for the first time and there was just this complete silence for like seven or ten seconds and then the whistle blows and then there's this cacophony of sounds. And I understand what he's trying to do, but I just, I felt it took me out of the movie. But it is effective in that I'm jolted when there's suddenly a rise of sound. Yeah, because I mean, I kind of think the complete opposite, actually, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I love the fact that he was doing that. And again, I think it's just kind of like, um, you know, this is, I suppose, coming from the tradition of expressionist mm. cinema. And we associate that so much with vi- um, visuals. And I think he's doing it with sound. I think he's using it in an abstract abstract way. Uh, it, it's almost, you know, I went to go and watch Oblivion the other day. And it's an incredibly loud film in many respects in some places. And obviously, it's all part of an overall sound design. But you know, I, I thought what I liked about this, he stripped it back and was like, you know, what does he need to use this kind of thing and kind of to, to draw you in? And I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, um, like, it is jarring. But I mean, that's obviously the whole point of it, I think. And I, I think it adds such an atmosphere to it because, you know, this is a huge city, don't forget. I think this film's meant to kind of take place in. And by kind of taking that sound out of it, it does take on this kind of quite otherworldly feel to it. Mm, very much so. But I mean, kind of going back to how kind of how sound is used as kind of, you know, it's part of the case, isn't it, really? I mean, you know, many of the characters pick up on these kind of clues and, you know, listening to it. And there was that brilliant scene you were talking about where, you know, the mob almost kill that guy because they kind of arrive halfway through a conversation almost. Yeah, there was this pickpocketer where, which was um, questioned by the police or something. And he says to them, uh, why don't you try to catch the child murderer? And the crowd around him only hears the word child murderer. And then they start accusing him of being the culprit and it's this interesting thing where i think he's commenting on the dangers of how we are picking words out of context and how we are misinterpreting yeah and it, it i think it makes every line in the film important doesn't it i mean it's you know it, it's again it, it's i just think you know for such an for, for such a film that's so early in the sound age i, I think this is it's it's so impressive what he's actually managed to do with it and because there's no score as well in the film is there no. either and it adds to the the realism and the the uh, the brechtian of it where he's trying to he's trying to make us equate what is happening on the screen with real life events and adding music to that yeah. i think would distract more from that yeah i mean his question do you think this film could work as a silence film i can't imagine it working uh, the way it is now without using sound because it's so integral for our involvement in the film. It wants us to deliberate and uh, wants us to think about what's happening on screen and it related to our lives. And we wouldn't have that interaction with the film in the same way if it wasn't uh, very brilliant use of sound in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's going back to that whole kind of 3D thing, you know, it just seems, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, could you make this, you know, could, would it work? I think, you know, you could have your sound card, couldn't you? you know, sorry, your placard or whatever, your intertitle, intertitle, I think that's what it's called, wasn't it? You know, saying, you know, and he was whistling this tune, blah, blah, blah. But it wouldn't be the same. It, you know, it, it simply would not, I don't, it wouldn't have the impact that it does as being a sound film. I think that's testament, really, to how well-conceived the sound design is in M. Yeah, it definitely captures the audience more through its use of sound other than us having to read it and maybe it's that uh, our modern sensibilities of using sound are different but i just feel that the way he's using sound it makes us reflect more on uh, what is happening on screen yeah i mean it, it forces you to focus doesn't it and mm-hmm. it's it it's it, it, it's a very economical film in how it tells its story and there's not a great deal of dialogue is there really it's all sort of kind of mood and look really and um you know obviously coming through that kind of schooling of silent cinema you know he's part of a generation you know, our generation will never have that really you know um 
I think it's a different way of making films. You know, as I've said it before, you know, when I watched Sunrise, I was just it changed how I thought about cinema. That film, mm-hmm. you know, seeing how you can you don't need them. You know, having just edited my in the process of doing the sound edit on my short film, the edit I'm doing now is one I did several when it was just silent, no noise whatsoever, and that was you know, can I tell this story without sound? And you know, I think it's a very very important uh, way of approaching cinema. And I know there's a lot of filmmakers who who, who take a similar. Um, go down a similar path when they're editing their films you know does this film work visually first and you know kind of audibly second as it were you need it and that's one of the things you always learn you, know, you don't need much dialogue if you can kind of you know if you get your shots right and um yeah i think fritz lang he masters that perfectly i think we can, you know, can move on now to sort of the him as the director in this you know kind of the visual um uh aspects of the film because i, I mean you said before i mean it, it's you know it's an extraordinary film to look at and you can see its influence on film noir, can't you? Definitely. You can see that, especially on filmmakers like David Fincher, for example, with his Seven and especially on the Zodiac uh, killing, that mm. uh, it's very much this uh, police procedural, but this film, I feel, has more epic perspective and societal view of crime. But there's this, um, in terms of film noir, you have this dark cityscape and this dangerous environment and all these uh, pathological characters. And uh, very in, even in terms of its visuals, just in terms of uh, great use of shadows and uh, these canted angles and just this gloomy, dark sense of uh, despair almost. Yeah, and it's, you know, obviously it was all filmed on stage stages. Actually, it's one of the things I was going to say, you know, for, for such an awful part of town, it's incredibly clean. But I mean, again, it's, it's part of the, the, I suppose, the artificiality that kind of comes with, you know, expressionist cinema, you know, and you have the kind of, you know, these dark shadows and, you know, like I said, the angles and things like that, which it's just a bit skewed if you see them now. I mean, I was watching um, Thor the other day again, you know, and, you know, kind of, Kenneth Branagh used all these kind of Dutch angles in it, and it, I was like thinking, "Oh, you, you don't really need to be doing that." It didn't seem to work, but in this, it has a perfect context for it because it skews the way in which we perceive the reality of it. You know, it does seem very odd and bizarre, and it's something that's kind of quite off. And I, going back to that kind of idea of him being a very economical filmmaker, my the the, the opening um, introduction to him is it, it, quite brilliant. You have the poster saying that there's a killer on the loose. You have his shadow coming over the poster and a, a girl, you know, throwing a ball about what you can hear or something like that. And it just lets you know everything about what's going on. And it reminded me of um, the way Joss Whedon opens Serenity. And he got so much in, you know, story, backstory, current story, future story, all in one, like, brilliant sequence. And it reminded me of that. And that's, you know, that's something that comes out, I think, of um, being schooled in silent cinema. Mm. He's very, as you said, economical, and he's he's using the visuals to tell the story. The sound is, it is not important in terms of uh, explaining what is happening to us, but it it's giving us uh, other plots. But it's not um, extra exposition for us, if you understand. Yeah, definitely, and it's it, yeah, like the information. What you need to know is contained in every shot of the film. If you pay attention and watch M, everything that's going on in the film is contained in the shot. There's nothing. There's not. A, an ounce of fat on it basically and uh, yeah i think you know the, the, the cinematographer it was a guy called fritz Arnold wagner who was kind of the master of the science cinema you know, kind of shot nosferatu and films like that and yeah, you know, w- what a great wingman to have you know when you're kind of doing a film like this you know someone who's just going to know every kind of trick in the book to kind of get those shots and kind of just tell that story and but do it with such style as well because you were saying about as well how much the camera the camera's moving around a lot in the film isn't it especially when you uh, want to engage the audience they seem to move the camera a lot by drawing attention to it uh, where he's he's not attempting to use this smooth motion but he's dollying fast along with um, with Beckett for example when he's being followed by the mob where he is he's attempting to create this urgency I think with the camera work as well as the images yeah I don't think it, I, I, I don't necessarily think I don't think it's flashy for flashiness sake either I don't think you know I, it, it's not you know obviously you're kind of aware of it, the fact that it's there but I, I think it's, it works perfectly for the story and the style that Lang has I don't feel it's kind of um, 
it didn't get in my way in any, in any regard of you know enjoying the film i didn't sort of think you know kind of move aside for it and let the story kind of take care of itself yeah i feel it keeps in line with this uh in this intense of having us to notice that this is a creation but we can relate it to uh, real life events it keeps a reality to it yet it keeps a certain distance he's drawing from the um from the liberty of placing the camera apart from a specific character basically the camera can observe anyone it wishes to observe because it is a sort of omnipresent perspective a god's perspective where we can follow the criminals and the police and the beckett and beckett uh, from uh, everywhere yeah certainly and you know, yeah <laughs> said it perfectly really you know it's you you're very very aware of the artificiality of the environment this film is taking place in and i think it's a credit really to kind of just how kind of gripping a film it is and mm. how interesting lang makes it that you can get over that relatively quickly and the perfect example of that i i seem to recall was uh, the lars von trier film dogville you suddenly see like you know the the sets are drawn on the on the stage with chalk and i was amazed how quickly um the f- I got over that and just, you know, it, 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 I, I didn't really consciously think about it at all. And it, M's the same kind of thing, really. You know, it's these kind of crazy angles. It's clearly kind of news kind of like builds the sets in a way where they're kind of slightly bigger or smaller than they need to be. So kind of people look slightly abstracted against them. And um, it just works perfectly. I, I, I think it's just a, a wonderful way of filming. And it's something we don't see anymore. You know, Dark City, I suppose, um, is is a film which you kind of you. I, I can't believe that that wasn't um, kind of hugely influenced. Well, sorry, M was didn't hugely influence how that film actually looks. Yeah, that's also kind of. I mean, you you were saying that it's it, it kind of it's pre Hitchcockian, but very Hitchcockian in many respects. Well, you kind of elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, because. You can see that we were talking about economical type of uh, cinematography and editing before, but it's the sense that he's he's cutting away from not the knife entering the body, but cutting away from the killer going into the building where we're much left to our own mental abilities to imagine what is going to happen inside that. And it's it's sort of this impressionistic where we see um, we see bits of the puzzle, but there's a giant puzzle we have to assemble ourselves. Yeah, and I dare say, I mean, a lot of that has to do with you know the time. But you know, going back to kind of David Fincher, you know, in Seven, I don't need to know what someone looks like eating themselves to death. You can imagine it, and you can imagine the horror and the misery and the suffering the person went through. And you know, that's what he does in this film. You know, all the killings are off screen, and it becomes infinitely more horrific i think knowing that um i, I don't know it's, it's not it's directly read to film we don't know if it's kind of there's a sexual element do there do we? i don't think it's ever mentioned now it's interesting to think about whether the the audience of that time thought in terms of sexual um, aggression or if they just thought that this was a killer yeah, I wonder if it was reported. Yeah, you know, I mean, we said like it was obviously based on those kind of true stories. I wonder if it was reported at the time. Hmm. I can't imagine it was. I don't. I, I don't know whether you know. I. It. I would imagine it. You know, people who just quite left it. At, you know, the child was murdered. I actually imagine it was. Um, I it was pretty. You know, it's too awful. I suppose, or you know, just people just didn't want to know or something like that. But you know, certainly, you know, it, it's the idea of this guy just killing these kids off screen. You. you you don't need to see it, and I don't, and it, and it works best as well. You know, like with you know, like Hitchcock knew. You know, put it in people's imagination, and uh, you know, I think we're far worse what we can think about than what you can ever actually see. Yeah, like the scene where the security guard is being beaten up by the um, the um, the criminals. The criminals, yeah, and it's it's one of the most horrendous scenes I feel because we can hear his screams, but we're standing outside of the building uh, with the other criminals watching them just uh waiting for him to give the uh um, the answer to where the other watchmen are yeah and again when you have the uh, you know when you when the sound is so sparse and you have moments like that hmm. you know it's that other one you know where that scene where the kind of the ball rolls out from the bushes you know else's ball and you know we know what's happened you know we, that that's it then and it's um I, I think it's infinitely more mature i mean how many horror films now do we have where it's just wall-to-wall gore and you know, I think we're desensitized to it in many respects. You mm-hmm. know, it just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't have that effect, does it? And you know, again, I think they just kind of you know, get on with it and make it up. But 
Hey, moving on really to that kind of the film's kind of like final 15 minutes because it, it does take a quite a dramatic turn in pace, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it it gets back to the first 25 minutes, I feel, because the first 25 minutes of the film are quite uh, intense in, in terms of what's happening and the editing and um, how much the camera is moving around and then it slowly sets its pace to this um, kind of police procedure where it's straight up narrative uh, classical and then the final 15 minutes it turns up the notch again with a uh, more eye-popping cinematography as i wrote and quicker pace of editing definitely whether you feel that there's more at stake when beckett is being hunted through the streets and up these um, buildings and whatnot there's more at stake when beckett is uh, being hunted and he's being put on trial and everything yeah and it's and it's a it, it's a brilliant ending to the film as well because you're kind of taking place in this abandoned uh kind of distillery but it kind of goes i think into very much uh, a strange area because i mean I, I was saying this before where you have this kind of like, the mob form this kind of trial for him and he's given his defense and you have the kind of the prosecution everyone stands there and there's no way that this guy can possibly get a fair trial is there no and it gets away more from the can we catch the criminal to what do we actually want to do with the criminal it's a different perspective that uh, Lang is putting the film in, and it, you know, again, it kind of comes back to kind of like the modern world, really, where you know it's it always amazes me. You know, for example, I was gonna, the story I can recommend was we, we had a, in Manchester, we had a paediatrician move move into an area, and the the, the local idiots got together and decided a paedophile had moved in, and they were actually seen on news with signs saying. Um, Death to paedophiles with paedophiles spelt P-E-A-D-O-F-I-L-E-S. And they were so thick that they couldn't possibly, they didn't realise that paediatrician wasn't a paedophile. Although, you know, it's working with children in many respects. But it was just, it just amazed me when I was seeing these people and I, I just thought you absolute dickheads, basically. You know, you have no idea. And what do you think you're going to do when you get this person? And it amazed me because people say, oh, you know, Oh yeah, they, 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 they suddenly say, "Oh, you know, I hate these kind of murders and killers, or whatever." You think they should be sent to an island and tortured and murdered, or what have you? And I sit there thinking, so the thing that kind of disgusts them about you, you want to do to them? How's that justice? You know? Yeah, it's definitely. He seems to be commenting, Lang. Uh, he seems to be commenting on the lack of control and how that is what separates us from the criminals and the mentally uh, insane. He's sort of saying that society is dangerously close to becoming this mob mentality or this Nazi mentality we can see developing. And he's sort of attempting to adjust their course, basically. Yeah, and I, I think the film, it, it makes a good case for authority in society. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a, a good case for law and order, basically, because, you know, during that moment, I, I feel so, I, I do generally feel quite sorry for him, you know, when he's sort of you know, pleading with them, really, to kind of look at him as... Yes, what he does is wrong, but he can't help it. He, he it's it's a something innate in him, mm -hmm. and it, it's a very very um, yeah. Cause I think his defence kind of comes to his uh, his aid in in some respects, and it's it's a very uncomfortable position that Lang's putting us in, or, or you know, trying to put the audience. And it's a very important point that he's trying to make. And I think the brilliance of it is he doesn't ram it down our throats. He just kind of says, you know. What what do you think of this? You know, what what's your sort of reaction to it? Yeah, it's very much engaging us instead of declaring to us the right answer. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, that's I, I, again, I think that's great filmmaking when yeah. people do that. You know, I, I think it's such, I think it shows such more respect for your audience than ramming the point home. Mm -hmm. Again, what was the film I was thinking about when I was watching that? Dead Man Walking, and I, I thought that's a, a brilliant film that kind of deals with you know how it that final scene when um you know sean penn's characters are you know going to be kind of um killed by lethal injection and it, it shows you things in that film you know what that guy's done and what's happening to him and it, it reminds you of the fact you know we do see his victims and it i thought it's incredibly film how it does that it doesn't ram it down your throat you know you make your own mind up you know you could have an equally legitimate thing you say well he deserves everything he's getting or you could say well you know Two wrongs make, don't make a right. And I think Lang kind of, although he's, he's sort of black and white with that, but I think he's certainly sort of, he's making a point, but in a very um, open way, I suppose. But I think, you know, I think we just talk briefly really about um, Peter Laurie's performance as well. 
yeah, he's he's definitely the star of the film and the only one I really remember as a actor from this film where he gives this incredibly varied performance where you can see him in all types of roles. He's he's sort of like a chameleon character where he's adapting his personality to all these different people and circumstances. And you can see he's hitting different notes from being kind of funny and sweet to these kids and then begging on his uh, knees um, in front of this uh, mock court, for example. It's such a different character, and yet he's giving so much of himself on the screen. Yeah, it's a proper performance, isn't it? I think, you know, it's um, it's certainly one... Obviously, you know, we, we touched on it, but it was a performance that he would become so renowned for. But, um, I, you know, and, and rightly so, I think it's, I think it's amazing work, really. You know, to be able to inject humanity into a person like that, you know, it's no mean feat. And um, in the kind of days, you know, acting now, it's, um, I suppose it might be more intense would be the word. But, you know, you, you know, you can tell what kind of an Oscar winning performance is going to look like and kind of be like. And um, I, I think Peter Laurie, you know, he was kind of quite ahead of the game. But you know, it's, it's, it's kind of sad in a way, you know, because at the time when he was filming this, um, he was actually um, suffering with a morphine addiction. Um, which I think was caused either by an operation he had or by an accident he had had, something like that. And, um, you know, after this, he was basically just inundated with um, requests to go and be, you know, murderers and what have you. And I think it was, um, you know, kind of Hitchcock who got Mm. him to play a baddie. And I don't know if you've seen The Man Who Knew Too Much, but he's rather fantastic in that. And I'm going to be talking about that on 24 Frames Class quite soon, actually. And um, it's... In that, he kind of plays this rather smiling kind of, you know, nasty type. And because uh, I watched, you know, these films quite back to back, I was really kind of, it creeped me out a little bit watching him. He's, he's, although he kind of like went on to kind of do things like, you know, kind of Casablanca and, um, was he in the Maltese Falcon or? Yeah. Um, he was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's a shame he kind of didn't kind of, he's not kind of more renowned for, for you know, he didn't kind of have kind of bigger parts and things like that because I certainly think he's kind of like, you know, a pretty great face. Just an interesting face, isn't it? I suppose. Definitely a face you remember. There. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it certainly has that kind of a look about him, which I think you can kind of take it kind of quite childlike or quite kind of sinister, kind of depending on what kind of which side the coin lands. But overall, what what's your kind of final thoughts then of Fritz Lang's M? It's a fantastic film. I can't really think of a reason why you shouldn't watch it right now. Actually, so it is uh, such a such a film that. I don't think anyone wouldn't get a pleasure out of watching it because it's uh, it speaks to our modern sensibilities. It has uh, societal concerns. It's not boring at the least. So yeah, brilliant film. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think it's an, it's incredibly it, it's an incredibly modern film, and it, I think it'll always be relevant in some respect. Em. And um, you know, it's it's quite interesting what happened to kind of Fritz Lang after this by. By his own recollection, he was summoned to see Goebbels after the film's premiere and was asked to come and work for the Nazi party making films for them. And then he said he left the country immediately. Now, there is some discrepancies between what he actually said um, and, and what actually happened. I think the dates don't quite marry up. We don't, he, well, I, think it's, I think it's acknowledged he did go and see Goebbels. I think that did happen, but I don't think he left straight away. But um, rather sadly, his wife, actually, who was one of the co-writers on this film, actually did stay and work for the Nazi parties. And that was something which um, affected him quite deeply throughout his life. And I wonder if that was perhaps why he was quite keen to say that he had um, you know, left as soon as... But basically, perhaps he was kind of slightly embarrassed or you know, worried what people would think of him. But I prefer it to Metropolis. I mean, Metropolis is an incredible film as well, but I still think it's his best film. Certainly yeah. the best film that I've seen of his. I haven't seen them all. I've seen you know, a, great, a great deal of them, but... Yeah, I think it's a masterpiece, and I, I, you know, it's a very overused term that, but I certainly think it's extremely applicable in this case. Yeah, it, it's interesting that actually Goebbels was fascinated by this film because I see it as a very indictment of uh, the Germany he didn't like. Actually, it seems that he he doesn't car- he doesn't paint any of these characters or Germany as a whole in a positive light. No, I mean, yeah, do you know what? I mean, it might have just come from, I mean, because I know Metropolis was on rotation, wasn't it? At kind of the Wolf's Lair or what have you. And, mm. and it, perhaps they just sort of thought he was the, the man to kind of sell the German ideal, you know. Yeah. Perhaps they admired the, uh, you know, the te- his technical skills. You know, it might just come down to that. You know, I perhaps they you know, didn't look too deeply into the thematic elements. I, I don't think there's a whiff of Nazism in it, really. I don't think it's that 
I mean, this is 31, you know, it was a tight, you know, a good few years before it were kind of already kicked off. But like I said, it's not a flattering portrait of Germany. Um, you wouldn't watch that and think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go there on holiday. You know, we've got criminals, prostitutes, murderers, <laughs> gangsters, you know. It, like I said, yeah, it's, it's not a sort of a glowing indictment, but you know, it's interesting. I, I, it's, I always think we will never quite know what really happened in those circumstances with filmmakers like that, other than the fact that they left, you know, were obviously very bravely kind of went out and became quite outspoken. But, you know, it's, I think it's one of those ones that would be kind of left to history, kind of the real truth and what have you. And, uh, mm. you know, we'll never know. But certainly I think Fritz Lang is uh, an incredible director. I can't wait to talk about more of his films as well, actually, in the Master Cinema collection. So. I mean, we can move on now. Just a quick chat as well about uh, the Blu-ray that's come out on this. Um, really, I, I, I think um, up until quite recently, that there has been another print found, isn't there, of this? Yeah, the Munich Film Archive print is uh, currently touring with uh, Kino Loba. And uh, it's a newly discovered nitrate print, which is actually slightly longer. Uh, and right. they've been able to fix some of the jittery cuts and dropouts. But uh, there's a more consistent picture throughout. Yeah, and I mean, I've you know I've had various editions of this. I think I even had it on VHS um, after thing. And yeah, it's been for various incarnations. This this Master Cinema one, as far as I'm concerned, is the best I've ever seen. I've not seen this new print. I know that I know it's come out on Blu-ray as well in Germany, but yeah, I've no interest in picking it up. I think this is the one that I, I like the most. And um, it's it comes with a couple of audio commentaries. Um, there's a British release version of M, which I haven't watched, and that's just because yeah, you know, it's it's shorter. It's you know, it's completely. It's got a few different differences made. To it. And if I'm going to watch M, I'm going to watch this Fritz Lang version. But you know, for completists, it's it's all there. Um, there's um, a documentary um, with Fritz Lang discussing his career in German cinema and a brilliant booklet as well. And I think that's one of the things I always go back to about master cinema is get your booklets. You know, they're, they're well worth kind of collecting because um, they're pretty fascinating reads, some of them. And also they've got a um, Dolby 2, uh, sorry, a DTS HD master 2.0 soundtrack on it. So they haven't kind of tried to do this kind of, um, you know, god awful sort of attach a kind of surround sound score to it which you know they might have you know, I, I guess a sound designer would have a field day with this kind of adding ambience on the rear channels they've not done that they've just kept what's there but it is a region b blu-ray as well by the way so you will need a multi-region player or some kind of software to kind of get through that if you want to watch it abroad mm. and in terms of the sound i think like listening to this in 5.1 that's not what lang created so no. i don't know i don't know yeah, if i want to watch that yeah, I mean, yeah, we obviously haven't done it, but I mean, yeah, something like kind of like Birth of a Nation, you can imagine that's a good way, you know, you can sort of get in there, you know, give it, because it's just an orchestral sort of, you know, dominated film, so you can probably kind of legitimately do it. But something like this, I'm, I, I'm such a bigger fan of, if it's a mono film, watch it in mono, you know. Mm. I don't know if you picked up the Jaws Blu-ray release, but there was like a 7.1 surround sound mix done for that. And it was originally broadcast in mono, and it's there on the soundtrack. If you want it, it's a mono soundtrack, and I, that's how I've watched it, and that's how I've enjoyed it. It's you. Know, I like to see films how they were originally intended. I mean, I think that's what it's all about. You know, it's um, sort of the gifts of Blu-ray, as it were. And um, I certainly think this film it, it, it's it's a very faithful um, presentation of how this film should be seen. And you know, just to kind of I, I've you know I've, I've heard how much kind of work went into the restoration of M and um you know it's, it's i'm just so glad that people kind of do it and uh, we have masters cinema kind of out there doing it um you know putting those versions out that's going to be it for this episode um Joachim, you just want to send out a few thanks don't you to people who have kind of helped us get up and running yeah there are definitely people that have been supporting us and that has been getting us lots of traffic on our website um ryan gallagher from the criterion cast and Craig Skinner from Bleeding Cool and his Masters of Cinema column, which comes out once a month. And um, Keyframe Daily, they've all been blogging about our podcast, so that's greatly appreciated. And also Masters of Cinema, they tweeted about us and uh, recommended us to their followers. And of course, uh, you who are listening to our show right now, thank you. Yeah, many thanks for downloading. If you want more, come over to um, mocast.blogspot.com. That will be changing when I get five minutes. I'll... Um, let you know what the kind of the new uh, domain is but um you can also follow on twitter at moc underscore cast you can email us at the masters cinema cast at gmail.com um if you could take some time out to leave us a review on itunes that'd be greatly appreciated um all the kind of reviews we get will help us get on the featured page and hopefully get more listeners um you can find me as well my other podcast 24 frames cast.blogspot.com 
and um, we will be back soon very soon with another episode so many thanks for listening and goodbye Thank you.